1: running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome.
0: Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science.
2: What that essentially means is discovery advances questions Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith. And this week, we are looking at population. Or should that be? Overpopulation. We've just passed the eight billion mark and we're using two planets worth of resources every year, allegedly. So, why is no one talking about this? The Naked Scientists
0: podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk.
2: Now last month we were told the eight billionth person was added to Earth's human population but despite many acknowledging that some of the biggest threats facing us and the planet like climate change stem from our impact on the world and the more of us there are the worse those threats are going to be the topic of population is mysteriously absent from the dialogue at major international fora like the recent COP27 meeting in Egypt. Surely Living sustainably must include, as David Attenborough puts it, not overrunning the planet and destroying it in the process. So, how many people can, or indeed should, the planet support? And to what extent is a growing population the cause of our environmental and social issues? Or is it more a symptom of an imbalanced and unequal system which, if corrected, would right itself? Well, that's what we're going to consider in this episode. But to predict the future, we first must, of course, understand the past. And the road to a one billion population took us nearly all of human history to reach. And that was by around 1800. But in the two centuries since, we've increased our numbers eightfold. And the rate has been accelerating over much of that time. Indeed, when I made one of my first radio programmes 20 years ago, the front cover of One Science magazine greeted the world's six billionth person. This, as the Cambridge-educated economist Thomas Malthus pointed out would happen back in 1798, is what's called exponential growth. He realised that our ability to reproduce would go faster the more of us there are. Our ability to produce food, though, doesn't. He was one of the earliest to sound the alarm concerning the ability of populations to outstrip the resources that sustain them. We're here to explain more about how we've arrived at today's 8 billion and the trajectory that we are still on is Alice Reid, who's the director of CAMPOP, the Cambridge group for the history of population and social structure. Alice, obvious question perhaps, how do we know there are 8 billion of us?
3: Well, the answer to that is we don't know. It is an estimate. We do have censuses and we monitor births and deaths in most but not all of the world, but we never measure everyone at the same time. So the UN just chose this date to mark 8 billion. But we
2: think that's vaguely how many of us there are.
3: Yes, yeah, it's fairly accurate, I should say.
2: How fast is the population growing? I mentioned the history of exponential growth and the fact that it has accelerated, it has gone ferociously fast, but what do we think the current rate is as an average across the planet at the moment?
3: It's less than 1% a year, so you're right that... Population growth really picked up after about 1750-1800. It was quickest in the the 1960s when it was about 2.2% per year and it's actually slowed since then and population growth is going to get slower and slower up until about... 2010. It's
2: patchy though, isn't it? Because if, if one asks, what is the population of our country doing? We'll get a very different answer than if I ask, for instance, what's the population of Nigeria doing?
3: It's very variable. And many places have populations which are already falling, for example, Italy, many places in Eastern Europe, many places in East Asia, Japan, China, and so on. But many parts of Africa still have quite rapidly growing populations.
2: Now, if we look back in history, what, what do you think drove the changes that we saw those rates Changes, Very fast acceleration and now in some cases, as you're saying, some countries a diminution in growth or even a shrinkage where other places are still growing quite quickly.
3: So most countries have either been through or are going through a process called demographic transition. And this is the change from quite high and variable mortality and fertility rates, so lots of births and lots of deaths, and then a change to low and variable, less variable mortality and fertility. And different countries have gone through this process at different times and... For example, Britain and and most of Europe, North America, went through this process in the 19th and early 20th century, but other places are still going through this process. Of course, individual countries are also affected by migration, which feeds into, into that balance of people too. I did read a
2: statistic somewhere. I must admit I haven't fact-checked it but it seems plausible and it said because of ferocious rates of growth which you were pointing to in the 1960s and that sort of ilk that 15% of the people who've ever lived are alive right now. Does that sound plausible to you?
3: No that (laughs) well those sorts of statistics have been analysed and debunked and and I can't remember exactly where 15% fits but there's a great episode of more or less on that so you can go and listen to that.
2: <laughs> when do you think then, based on what we know and what facts, figures, and stats we can rely on, when do you think we're going to reach peak person? When will the population top out at whatever number it's going to?
3: Current estimates suggest that it will probably peak at about 10.5 million, somewhere around that, billion, sorry, somewhere around that before the year 2100.
2: Right. And is that assuming just everywhere continues to grow at the rate it is now? Are people factoring into these predictions climate change, migrations, the fact that some parts of the world will become much nicer to live in but they're far fewer and outstripped by the number that will become worse places to live because of things like climate change?
3: Each country's estimates are done on a country level basis and take into account what's happening to mortality. And most of the assessments reckon that mortality will continue to decline slowly and that fertility will, depending on what's happening to fertility in that country, will either sort of decline if it's not already below replacement, which is below about two children per woman. So I don't think there are massive issues with mortality built into those to do with climate change. I think most of the assessments of population are that mortality will continue to decrease slowly. Of course, that may not happen if there are problems with mortality events connected to climate change. Where do we think the hotspots
2: are for the next few decades?
3: Well, most of population growth will occur in Africa. Population is declining already in China, although fertility has been low, below replacement levels in China since about 1990. Population over, overall is finally starting to decline. But population growth is likely to carry on in Africa, where fertility is still three or four, five children per woman.
2: Is there any reason why the population isn't higher than it is already?
3: Well, that's because of the demographic transition, because fertility does tend to start to fall at some point after mortality has fallen. So, as populations develop, as living standards get better with falling mortality, then women start to want to have fewer children, partly because more of their children are surviving into adulthood, partly because some of those changes um, which occur give women more opportunities, partly because they begin to see that they have control over their fertility and can reduce it. Um, so if fertility hadn't declined and wasn't declining, then population would be bigger than it is.
2: And we'll probably be hearing a bit more about that in a little while from Kathleen Mogulgard. Alice Reid, thank you very much indeed for outlining the current population situation for us. Now, speaking of Kathleen Mogulgaard, if our immediate future is for the moment set to be one of continuing growth, what are the challenges that we're facing with an even bigger population? Well, Will Tinkle spoke with Kathleen, she's the CEO of the Population Institute, they're based in America, about the array of challenges that come with a growing number of people, both from disease through to the economy and also the environment.
1: This is also a complicated one when it comes to thinking about population trends and environmental impact, because we know that not every person has a uniform environmental footprint. This is illustrated really clearly with the climate change issue, where folks in the United States and other industrialized countries have a huge uh carbon footprint with the kinds of consumption patterns that we have and places around the world that are growing the most rapidly in sub-saharan africa for example their carbon footprints per capita are extremely small so while it is true that an overall growth in the world's population over time is a factor that can drive uh, the growth of greenhouse gas emissions population growth is not an area that is dominant in terms of its impact on the growth of greenhouse gases. The area that is dominant in the growth of greenhouse gases is the highly fossil fuel consumptive patterns that are happening in industrialized countries. That's not to say, however, that we shouldn't be thinking about population dynamics in our response to the climate crisis. And one area where this is extremely evident is in terms of climate change vulnerability. We know, for example, that the countries that are most vulnerable to the negative impacts of climate change, many of them are experiencing rapid population growth. So as we as a collective global community are thinking about long-range responses To the climate crisis, we really need to be understanding those demographic trends, how they exacerbate vulnerability, and also thinking about how the investments that we make today that improve the health and well-being of people here today can have an impact of shaping demographic trends over time in ways that reduces the scale of human vulnerability to climate change and really strengthens adaptive capacity. Things like investing in the education of girls, ensuring that reproductive health and family planning services are available and accessible to everyone everywhere.
0: In less economically developed parts of the world. Obviously, as you say, they are not responsible for the majority of uh, carbon emissions. But Is there anything to the claims that as their populations grow and industrialization increases and they have access to better transport, better infrastructure, better standard of living, that their levels of carbon emissions will suddenly spike up? And with the increase in population they have, it becomes an environmental effect of a greater population, but 20 or 30 years further down the line?
1: For sure. And some of the climate modeling that has been done has demonstrated this, that over time, um, as we have growing world population, and as we make assumptions about the kinds of poverty alleviation and economic development goals proceeding, that there will be, even with the best technology in renewable energy extended to everyone everywhere, at as quick a pace as we can possibly do, there will be continued use of fossil fuels to some degree in parts around the world. Uh, and so as populations that are growing now, hopefully begin to come out of poverty, we can expect their carbon footprints to increase to some degree. But we we hope that we can really be doing our job to support the development and dissemination of renewable energy technology very widely.
0: It's a hot topic now, and it certainly has been for the last few years. But with an increased population, does that go hand in hand with areas being more prone to disease outbreaks?
1: Certainly, as communities live in closer contact with one another, as population density proceeds, you know, there is a a global trend toward urbanization. We are, uh, in the last couple of decades, we have crossed over the threshold of 50% of us now live in urban areas around the world. And we are also pushing up against the boundaries of natural habitats. Uh, And these are things that, as I understand it, can lead to greater transfer of disease between animal populations and human populations. And then when you have human populations that are living in much greater uh, density and closer proximity to one another, um, diseases can transfer, can be spread more rapidly in those kinds of conditions, particularly um, if there are places where infrastructure is not in place, where uh, communities are not planned in ways that really support clean water and sanitation for example there's there's that kind of human population density that can lead to the rapid spread of disease
0: what are the economic effects because presumably you'd think if there were more people surely we are generating more money
1: it's not quite that simple unfortunately We are living in an increasingly demographically divided world, and I know there are a number of countries that are experiencing population aging with greater proportions of their populations in the older age brackets. There are some countries right now that are actually experiencing population decline. But there are many countries around the world that are continuing to experience very rapid population growth, and they have extremely youthful age structures. So each generation is larger than the one before, and in places where they are already struggling to provide basic services around education, around housing, around job opportunities – when each generation is larger than the one before, it can be very difficult to even stay in place with the kinds of progress that you are offering to your own population. And a very rapid population growth rate can overwhelm those basic services, can make it very difficult to provide education to the population, um, to provide housing, and to provide job opportunities. So a rapid population growth rate that many countries are still experiencing can make it very difficult to Pursue our goals around poverty alleviation, for example, or other sustainable development goals.
2: It's a complicated one, isn't it? Uh, Kathleen Mogelgaard there from the Population Institute. She'll be back with us a bit later on in the program with more insights.
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost effective voice, internet, and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your
2: company at spitfire.co.uk.
1: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for
3: audio and video productions.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And this week we are talking about human population and how we got to eight billion people and where we're likely to be headed next. But before we talk more about people and strategies to preserve the natural world from our encroachment, we have to face the uncomfortable fact that it is, as the old song goes, money that makes the world go round. And for something to happen sustainably, it has to be economically viable. So what role does the economy play and how many people there are and vice versa? And how does the fact that the world's population is aging also or to this equation. David Willits is the President of the Advisory Council at the Resolution Foundation think tank that looks for ways to improve the living standards of those on low to middle incomes. Before that, he was the UK's Minister for Science and Universities. David, what's your reaction to the 8 billion number that came out last month?
4: Well, I think that we've had some fantastic analysis already from your earlier contributors But I thought one point they didn't quite bring out was the sheer drama and challenge of this demographic transition that every society goes through eventually, where you, as they say, first you stop dying like flies and then you stop breeding like rabbits. So first of all, people observe that there's many more babies surviving and then they lower their birth rates. But in the meanwhile, you have this surge in the number of young people and it makes or breaks a society. It's the biggest single event. In the history of any society, and that transition can mean that you have lots of productive workers and can take your economy up to real prosperity. But if you can't absorb them and you have large numbers of unhappy, unemployed young people, you have revolution and civil war. And that's a massive challenge to absorb these young people. If you do it successfully, then this bulge works its way through the population. And then the great image is it's like a python swallowing a pig. This monster generation of young people who've all all survived mean that you end up with a lot of old people and then you have a new set of challenges. So my view is that that. For each society and economy, riding that set of changes is in many ways more important than the exact number of people we have in the world. The question is, if we can manage that transition well, and we have economic advance, then we should be able to tread more lightly in the world than we do at the moment. And we obviously got to produce far less carbon dioxide. But if we make, if societies make a mess of that transition, then they're unstable and often poor countries that. Will find responding to the challenge of climate change very difficult indeed.
2: I thought among poor countries we could include the UK in that because we, we are sort of the beneficiaries of that big baby bump we call them the boomers don't we big population expansion after the war that has led to a huge level of economic productivity because people are most economically productive when they're north of 20 and south of 70 in age and then as you say you've got to deal with the, what, what happens next because people in their retirement are net consumers so we've had the benefit we've had that bump. But we don't seem to be managing it very well. We've now got about three or four people in work for every retired person that we're trying to pay tax to support.
4: Well, indeed, one of the reasons for the underlying pressures on public spending leading in turn to the increases in taxes is quite simply that we have increased numbers of pensioners. And also, as the boomers age, and look, I'm a boomer myself, born in the boom between 45 and 65, there's also increasing pressures on the NHS. So that process of the change in the age composition of your population means at first you go through a sweet spot when all this surge in the population when the pig is in the middle of the python then you've got lots of workers not many pensioners ahead of them not many kids behind them then when that big generation grows older the pressures change and then you add in climate change in in my book about this the pinch i actually provide the figures for the other fact about it is we baby boomers in Europe are likely to have produced 700 tons of carbon dioxide each during our lives 1500 carbon tons of carbon dioxide for each American boomer by the way but our kids and then our grandchildren eventually are clearly going to may have to make a massive adjustment of producing far less carbon dioxide they can still let's hope enjoy prosperity, but it's, they're going to be treading much more lightly through the world, doing far less damage and producing far less carbon dioxide than we've done.
2: The point that Will Tingle put to Kathleen Mogulgaard was, well, there's a because a, her argument was, lots of people living in poorer countries don't have anything like that carbon footprint that you were just citing. So for us to say to them, you've got to rein it in, is unreasonable to some people's minds. But the point he made is, well, won't they then embrace the kind of lifestyle that generates that kind of carbon footprint with industrialisation of those countries? And that's presumably what we've got to safeguard against.
4: Yeah, and look, we do have a historic responsibility. In fact, because Britain had the Industrial Revolution, we were where it started, we do have a unique historical position. It was our inventors and our market economy that led industrialization. On the other hand, behind each British citizen, there is more historic production of carbon dioxide from our country than for any other citizen in the world, and we have to accept that. Um, And, of course, that does change the balance with places like India where production of carbon dioxide per person is low. However, if India and China industrialize and modernize the way we do then then we did then they really will destroy the world's climate so we all have to work together on this looking to the future of course we one of the reasons why we have in the west have to contribute is because of our historic role
2: are they receptive these economies to that argument though do they understand that they basically are the knife edge upon which climate is balancing with the scale of population they have a a billion plus people in india a billion people in china do they appreciate that that's where we are and that they have a stake to play? Or are they waiting for the rest of the world to do something about it and they will carry on the same way?
4: Look, every individual country can think of a reason why they shouldn't. Either they don't have the same historic responsibility, or now we're so small compared to everyone else, it won't make much difference, or um, we've got a particular economic problem. Now, we can all think of an excuse, but it's not really an excuse that anyone can use. We've got to do it all together. And I think that is the only way forward. But the other point I would make is that linking this to population, first of all, technology can help. There is no reason why we shouldn't be able to enjoy the levels of prosperity we have today, but with far less carbon dioxide production. And actually, the good news is, although it's hard to install, we know how to have decarbonized electricity. Uh, We know how we can better insulate our homes. Um, And one of the reasons why I think this matters more than exact population numbers is that where people are not just um, producers of carbon dioxide. They can also be innovative. They can also be creators. They're, the people are creators of culture. They're creators of scientific ideas. They're developers of technologies. And so we should also remember that in our path through the world, we can create things that make the world a better place. Um, and the challenge is, therefore, to try to ensure that even um, relatively populous countries like we in Britain We contribute to contribute to new economic growth and new ideas whilst not producing large amounts of carbon dioxide and not extracting resources from the world that can't be replaced.
2: David, thank you for sharing your insights. That's David Willits from the Resolution Mm -hmm. Foundation. So as we've just heard, a higher population does have consequences and not just for our environment but also in economical terms. So should depopulation, in other words, long-term measures to cut population growth rates, be considered, or be on the table at all? Now, at face value, it does seem straightforward, doesn't it? A lower population would liberate resources and living space, and it would also probably cut disease outbreak risks. But is this feasible, ethical, or even worth pursuing? The Population Institute's Kathleen Mogulgaard again.
1: This is a really interesting question, and I think it's a question that is asked over and over again, over over the decades, and asked in different ways. But essentially, I think the question is, how many people can the Earth support? And to me, this is a question that is kind of interesting to ask because it does lead us to further explore what that means, what the assumptions are that we're making about those people and how they live on the planet. The effects that a given population has on the planet is a result of a number of different factors, the number of people that are there, the consumption of those people, and then the kinds of technologies that we have in place that moderate that consumption. So from my perspective, there is no magic number of people that the earth can support. The answer to that question is it depends. What do we envision for the lifestyle of those people? What do we envision for the technology that's in place that's widely used in people's consumption? And then what do we assume about the resources that they are using in that consumption? So in my mind, there is no not necessarily any benefit to a reduction of human population or to an increase in human population. It's all directs us to think about how we live on this planet and what our values are in terms of people's overall levels of health and well-being and how we value other natural systems on the planet to other species, biodiversity or freshwater systems, that kind of thing. So it it really is a question of how we can organize ourselves collectively to ensure that the planet can be sustained, the natural systems that sustain us can continue to be sustained, and that we all can have a world in which people can enjoy health and well-being.
0: So it's far more worth putting time and energy into improving our infrastructure and our levels of equality than it is simply trying to reduce the number of people we
1: have. Right, but it certainly does not mean that we shouldn't think about population issues. And particularly, you know, as we've passed this population milestone of 8 billion people, it's a terrific opportunity for us to reflect on population dynamics and what that means for our life. And in particular, I think this is an opportunity for us to uh, understand where there continue to be deep and persistent inequities that are driving rapid population growth in many parts of the world. So from my perspective, the day of 8 billion is an opportunity for us to really understand and double down on our commitments to women and girls around the world. Women and girls who don't have opportunities in their lives, who don't have access to services, who don't have rights to their own bodily autonomy, and who maybe are not able to pursue an education. All of these things, when we can make these kinds of investments Uh, will have the effect of not only improving people's lives, but reducing fertility over the long term and putting the brakes on the population growth that we are continuing to see. And that just makes our other sustainable development goals, the prospects for achieving those sustainable development goals brighter. If we can put the brakes on population growth and do it in a way that improves the health, well-being, and rights of people around the world, I'm not sure why we're not doing that right now. It really, uh, those are investments that pay dividends now and in the future.
0: People who go, oh, we just need to reduce our population, perhaps don't realise the nuance of that kind of question. Because, as you say, there's a severe imbalance in emissions across each individual. There are huge ethical implications to decide who suddenly has to go.
1: I'm not even sure what it means to reduce our population. If if people are advancing this notion that we should reduce our population, uh, I'm not sure what they're thinking about. Because even understanding sort of the basic demographic concepts, you know, we've we've passed 8 billion people right now. We have the largest generation of young people entering their childbearing years now. So... I'm not sure what it would mean to reduce population when we actually have a lot of pop- momentum that is built into the population that we have here right now. People being born today are going to be tomorrow's parents, and there are a lot of them. Uh, and we just need to think more about how we can create a world that is safe, healthy, full of rights and opportunities for people, and that will have an effect of shaping population trends over the long term. But population trends are not anything that can be turned on a dime. You know, it's something that investments today will have the effects uh, generation or two down the line. So if people are talking about population reduction in the present moment, it's really hard for me to understand how what what they have in mind in terms of how we would achieve that.
2: Kathleen Mogulgard. So it seems then that the population can be used as a metric to measure really how evenly and fairly resources and access to education are distributed and how free we are to make choices about the essential concept of reproduction. But trying to solve our economic and environmental challenges by reducing population is like trying to treat the symptoms of a disease without actually dealing with the underlying cause. While it's important to address the challenges of high population density and the risk of disease outbreak, an attempted reduction in population won't help fight the underlying causes of that population boom in the first place. We can't meaningfully reduce our population in an ethical way either before it starts to curtail itself naturally. So it seems that a much better use of our limited time and resources is instead to strive for sustainable consumption and education in areas that are anticipated to experience the biggest population growths in the future. If we can manage that, the drop in population growth rates should follow. But 10 billion before long does look very likely. And there we must leave it for this week. But do join us at the same time next week when we're going to be taking a look at the force that has quite literally shaped our world. That's magnetism. We'll be hearing about the origins of tectonic plates over three billion years ago and the animals that are sensitive to magnetic fields and keeps them on track when they migrate, sleep or hunt for food. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.